Welcome back to The Wander. I know it's been a while since we had an episode, and I'm sorry for that. Uh, I had them all lined up. I was really excited about last year, and then, like many of us, COVID-19 happened and everything changed. I had guests lined up. Some of them couldn't make it at the beginning of COVID because of all the chaos that was happening, and then it was just getting harder to line other guests up. And honestly, it was just... I just didn't want every single conversation to be all about COVID and what could or could might or whatever might be. And I wanted to talk about moving forward, how we move forward in this weird world we have. That's the point of this podcast. How do we keep going forward? Let's look at these different things that may be the right path. Who knows? Because in the end, it is a wander, right? It's not a set uh, thing for anybody, and nobody has all the answers. I was listening to a podcast a little while ago, and I wish I could quote the person who said it. I don't remember, but, and I don't even know the quote exactly, but the idea made a ton of sense. Essentially, those that be, away, be afraid of those that say they have the answers, because they usually don't. The answers are harder to find. It takes digging, it takes time, it takes effort, it takes real conversations. It's not, uh, you're not gonna find the answers on social media, you're not gonna find them in memes, you're gonna find them in rich, interesting, exciting conversations with the people around you, with interesting individuals. And that's what I wanted this podcast to be always. Uh, you know, whether it's a researcher or a rock star or Whoever, I just wanted to have interesting conversations with people who had really experienced life or a part of life, had really dived into it and wanted to talk about it, right? People who truly had skin in the game when it come to the concept that they were talking about, whether it's putting on concerts or examining uh, how wild animals interact with people in urban environments. Yeah, I find that stuff super interesting. And I find that um, the balance between our ever evolving technology and et cetera, and et cetera, and keeping a connection to the natural world and um, our natural selves is just, it's an interesting story. It's an interesting tale to try to figure out. And I don't even know what it means to say our natural selves. That's another thing to examine. We barely have a concept of what humanity is, let alone what humanity is supposed to be, what we're supposed to be. I, and I don't have the answers. That's what I'm searching for. That's what these conversations are about. And that's what I hope that you find interesting as much as I do. That's why we're talking. That's why I'm talking today. Um, with Stephen Jenkinson, and he's back. I did a podcast with him about a year and a half ago, maybe even more than that. He's such an interesting speaker. Uh, and his voice alone, I could listen to for hours. And every time that I talk to him, I've got to go back and I've got to listen to the podcast multiple times to kind of dissect a lot of the phrases. But there's parts of the way that he thinks that I just absolutely love. And it was really cool to get to sit and talk with him again. Um, so I'll get to that in just a second, but I wanna once again, thank you for taking the time 
uh, to listen to this podcast. If you got this far, four minutes in, thank you so much. Uh, there's more than 2 million podcasts now on Apple Podcasts, and I think that's incredible because I think, um, I don't know, man, social media is not the way to have the conversation. It's not the way the conversation needs to be had. They need to be two people talking, three people talking, four people talking, all of us having a conversation about, you know, where we're going, where this is headed, what it's all about, man. <laughs> does that sound too hippie? Maybe it does. I don't know. I don't want to hold you up too much because if you came here to listen to Stephen Jenkinson, I appreciate it. I'm glad you're still here and it's going to happen in a couple of seconds. Thank you for giving this a listen. Thank you. Uh, for being a part of this wander with me. And uh, I hope you walk away with something on every episode. I hope that if you're like me and you have a wandering mind, a, a mind that has a hard time focusing just on one thing, that this gives you a little bit of a journey to go on for a little bit and maybe changes your perception on something, right? Anyway, did any of that make sense? I hope so. Let's get to it. You're joining me here today. The last conversation we had was about two years ago, and a lot has changed in that time. Um, what, what has changed for you? How, how has what's happening in the world right now changed you? Uh, well, I, first of all, I, I thank you for the invite and... and uh, being able to sit down and wonder about these things another time, I appreciate it. Um, as far as the, what's changed, you know, in a, in a catastrophic way, not nearly as much as I was hoping. Now that puts me probably on the outs for, you know, the standard response to this idea. I, I had hoped among other things that it would bring the current regime at least figuratively speaking, to its knees and failing that at least to some kind of radicalized self-doubt that was, you know, bordering on the paralytic. Uh, nothing of the kind is going to happen. Of this, I'm, I'm absolutely sure. On the other hand, um, there's the matter of uh, how easy it was to travel. I'm not sure that'll ever come back. Yeah, uh, I, I think I think internationally there'll be a lot of governments that take the same path that the Americans took shortly after their 9/11 uh, uh, event and employ what's happened to uh, to their advantage and make a lot of structural changes to uh, policy and you know practice and and the social uh, social commerce and so on. I'm fairly sure that's going to change and, and obviously has already, but I think the changes will be, will be a part of the firmament from here on out. For me personally, well, I had a 70 city four continent tour lined up uh, and uh, it was, uh, we even had the graphics. I mean, it was, we even had a record uh, ready to go that was going to be, you know, basically the new set list for the new show. And uh, the band was ready. We'd been off the road for a couple of months and were very energetic in, uh, in sticking with what was inspiring to us, Gregory and myself. 
And uh, needless to say, not one of those 70 shows happened. Uh, so no Istanbul, no Stockholm, no Tel Aviv or Jerusalem, uh, no anything. And uh, the forced uh, sort of stillness, something I've never been good at, uh, was, uh, it was, well, it was heartbreaking. It, yeah. In every way, heartbreaking. And, and uh, my school evaporated because uh, obviously nobody could travel. And a year down the road, I remain deeply underpersuaded that either that the, uh, the brakes will come off in terms of uh, people meeting and gathering and so on, or that people's willingness to do so will be magically restored when some kind of all clear signal uh, sounds. So, it, you know, I don't even know how to add all that up except <laughs> to say it's, um, it's a kind of, uh, it's a time that promised, I know this sounds perverse, but I think the time promised more than it delivered and compromised the old promises at the same time. Okay, there was a lot in there. I think we can break into a couple of pieces and, and, and talk a little bit more about. First off, what you mentioned at the start is that the, the potential of change that could have happened coming out of this. And, and I agree with you. I think I had hoped for, um, and maybe it's still to come. I mean, that maybe I'm optimistic, but maybe it's still to come. Um, when we, we came to realize how quickly we all can fall apart financially and in many ways, it, with one disease or one thing, and we realize how much we are all so interconnected, uh, the hope that the world would would um, make some changes to better fit that um, is kind of what I hoped for, but it doesn't seem that that is gonna happen, but I, I still am optimistic. Um, what do you, th how, do you, how do you think somebody should come out of this uh, when this is all over? <laughs> you know, uh, I, in, in a book called Die Wise, I mm -hmm. took to task the notion that there is a book called The Book of Supposed To, mm -hmm. that everybody has recourse to, though nobody's ever seen, that people can quote from routinely and authoritatively, never having read the thing, but that hasn't prevented most people from doing so. Yeah. I'm prevented from doing so, so I can't really traffic in shoulds yeah certainly not where they apply to others it would have been something though i would use that phrase it would have been something if this interconnectedness that you referred to was actually genuinely that i don't think it is it's you and i might part ways on that mm -hmm. point at least i think the condition that we found ourselves in before the pandemic how does a ambulance going by there um, before the pandemic uh, is a, a more, let's say, bare bones version of the same thing during the pandemic, which is rather than us being interconnected, which to my mind at least sounds like there's a lot of uh, erstwhile and deliberate communicating going on. And I prefer to imagine that we, I'm not sure I prefer it, I'm prone to imagine that what's really going on is that we're mutually consequential instead. And that might sound like a, a nuance not worth making a distinction in, but to my mind, they're fundamentally different because the second characterization, mine, 
but being sort of mutually consequential simply means that it's like we're all in a bed, if you will. Somebody yeah. moves, somebody else feels it. And I don't think most of what happens is actually has the deliberation that the word communication could probably promise. So, it, yeah, we're, you know, the, the, the system is wired tight, obviously. And there's a lot of consequence that might be only people at the very top of some pyramid or other are, uh, are driving or at least benefiting from. Certainly that's true. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know that, that uh, you know, the people that I meet or I used to meet on the ground, I don't know if they're, um, let's say, illumined much by the uh, remarkable degree of isolation that so many people have been obliged to endure. But I could almost guarantee you that in the next two to three years, in our corner of the world, we're likely to see a, a degree and a range of social disturbance and frank individual mental distress bordering on illness that would make any uh, routine day look deeply um, uh, worth the trouble if we could ever have one again. Uh, I think we're going to have all kinds of neighbors and friends and family members and to some degree or other ourselves being in a, in a, a degree of hurt uh, so unexpected and so uncharted. And I don't know that the mental health game is in any way prepared or situated or established itself or free from the things that we're talking about right now enough to be able to be of use when people genuinely hit the bottom. Uh, here's, here's a good parallel maybe. I think both of us recall when the Canadian government some years ago, uh, in the form of Trudeau, I believe it was, decided that it was high time that the uh, people who'd been obliged to um, uh, residential schools uh, from Indigenous communities uh, needed some kind of acknowledgement, recognition, a formal apology and the rest. And, mm -hmm. and that all took place quietly. There was also a fund that was set aside for them to, and I don't know how bizarre you could possibly be about this matter, but, but recompense them for their lost childhoods, let's say. And a, a not often reported consequence of that was a, an alarming and very sudden rise in the incidence of suicide amongst these people who'd lived this out, who were now in their 40s or 50s or mm -hmm. 60s or beyond. In other words, they'd lived all the ignoring and the ignorance from the dominant culture. They lived all the denials, all of the human wreckage of their families and their inability to have families and to sustain them and so on. And the, the, the payment comes through and the acknowledgement comes, and this is too much to bear. It's an amazing observation to make about what the consequences are of um, formality. And the parallel I'm drawing here is, I suspect that when, when uh, we're allowed to come out to play, mm -hmm. many of us will discover that we don't know how to play. And that consequence just by itself will be alarming and 
probably paralyzing and there's there'll be so much work to do to restore a sense of uh, you know social ability let's call it i think and uh that's that's coming i'm I, it's you know some aspects of it are already there but uh i believe that's coming yeah, and I think that you're absolutely right that I think some people believe that we're all of a sudden going to switch to the roaring 20s in six months when everybody's vaccinated. But I don't think that we're going to be able to transition to that uh, as simply as some people hope, uh, as I hope, really. I would love to be able to go out and enjoy concerts and see live shows. and uh, But I think some people are going to really struggle with that. And I think you're absolutely right in that. Um, I see that you're hoping to get back out on tour in in 2021-2022. Um, where, where do you believe your role is in helping with people getting back into the social fabric? Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's my role, to be honest. Obviously, if we get a chance to do it, the events themselves, the touring and the, the performances would be uh, opportunities for people to congregate however uneasily they may do so mm -hmm. in their scores rather than their hundreds and hundreds. That's my guess. What we become the occasion for that, but I've always understood the Knights of Grief and Mystery to be fundamentally a ceremonial event masquerading as a concert. And I don't imagine, not only do I not imagine that changing fundamentally, but I think it might even be called for more overtly than it's ever been called for before. Here's what I mean. After the show, I would typically be in the foyer of the venue signing books. And this was within 10 or 15 minutes after the last you know, notes of the show uh, were done. So people were still very much awash in the thing. And you know, the most routine response I got from the show was, I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know what this was. I, and you could tell from what they were saying, they still didn't know what to expect and they still didn't know what it was. And I'm gonna have to think about this because I've never seen anything like it and so on. That's because uh, we did our best to compromise the old prejudice, if you will, the old apartheid, that's a better word. Uh, that divided quote-unquote audience from quote-unquote performer. We, we undid it and we we're pretty effective and uh, anarchic at doing so, such that the audience really didn't know what the etiquette of responding was. And the result was uh, of our own doing that typically we could do the two and a half hour show with almost no applause, almost no response except the involuntary laughing or the occasional gasping or sighing or or sobbing all of those things happened so so uh, what do you mean ceremony then and not um some kind of cathartic or better better stated some kind of um, uh, therapeutic encounter well it was the greeks god bless them who entrusted us uh, allegedly with some of the high water marks of civility, civilization, and so on. And one of the things they did is bestow us with the idea of theater, which, I mean, who could, who could complain, who would argue? And I'm not complaining, 
but I'm going to point out something about the advent of theater. Theater, uh, with some in investigation, turns out to be a remarkable compromise of the exercise of ceremony making. That's historically, that's actually what happened. In other words, what the Greeks did is introduce two elements that contravened ceremony so fundamentally that there was no ceremony left after this introduction. The first one was an audience. And you might say, what well, ceremonies have audiences? And I would beg to differ and say, no, what they have is participants because mm -hmm. that's what a ceremony requires. All in, all the time, with a shared understanding that many a thing is at stake as a consequence of our participation. Nobody could say that about theater, not really. Ideally, yes, but in terms of a realistic expectation, I don't think anybody's banking on the fact that the entire event is predicated on the willingness of the audience to stop being an audience and see themselves as cast members. The second thing the Greeks introduced into the Fandango was a script. And what the script did and still does is to predetermine the outcome as well as the duration of the event. In other words, the script is a fairly um, bracing allegation of what's to come. And you can be handed one as you walk into a theater so as you're not left behind, so to speak. And the consequence from a ceremonial point of view in doing so is that the gods, the very ones you petitioned at the beginning for their ear and for their heart, the gods have been co-opted or shall, how should I put this, replaced by a script. The gods are no longer needed. Why? Because the outcome, give or take, is a given. So that's a long review and a long-winded way of saying that the Knights of Grief and Mystery did everything they could to subvert those kinds of expectations and that kind of structure. And this is why people were so flummoxed coming out, more so perhaps than when they were coming in. And, and, but creatively so, I would say, not frustratingly so. This is what I heard and I saw over and over again. Then if I, you know, finally to answer your question, if I imagine being able to do so in the aftermath of the plague that you and I were just talking about and all its consequences, the, I could well imagine the expectation would be that we would be doing something therapeutic, that we would be doing something to try to restore something that's been compromised. And I would say to you, we're not trying to restore anything. I'm not sure there's much of the old pre-plague regime that should be restored, not by people with an artistic inclination, at least. I mean, I think our responsibility is to wonder whether or not the good old used to be, you know, just a year ago, was it really as good or as old as our uh, sepia-toned nostalgia would suggest that it, that it was, finally. The word nostalgia is a good thing to know about. The etymology of the word nostalgia has nothing to do with looking back fondly on a simpler time. The word nostalgia literally means the return of pain. Isn't that a remarkable wow. um, misuse of the word today? 
But that's what it means, the return of pain, the recurrence of something you would not ordinarily have counted upon. So I don't think the Knights of Grief and Mystery have a therapeutic bone in, its, in their collective body. Uh, certainly it's not our intent as the performers. Our intent is to wonder aloud with alarming consequence. And I look forward to being able to do that again, that's for sure. And so you, you spoke about the 70 um, stop tour that had to be postponed. Was that yeah. tour for Nights of Grief and Mystery, your first album? It, it, uh, <laughs> no, the, the Nights of, so I, sure, I should have clarified. The phrase Nights of Grief and Mystery is initially, it was the name we gave to the very first tour that Gregory Hoskins and I put together as a duo. <laughs> And then there was something about the name that we recognized characterized the event rather than a particular iteration of the event. And so Knights of Grief and Mystery became the name of what we do. What we do. It's not the name of a band which completely stymies the customs <laughs> agents when they're asking you, <laughs> as you're trying to clear customs, you know, the name of the band just doesn't have one. What kind of music do you play? Well, it's not clear that there is a kind of music that yeah. we do and you know, you're just getting deeper and deeper with every question. So Nights of Grief and Mystery is what we have instead of a band name or a brand name yeah. uh, or, an, or any kind of you know, uh, uh, showbiz allegation. And then the name of the records are, you could say distinct iterations of what the Nights of Grief and Mystery have become as we have grown into an understanding of what our our intentions are and what our abilities are. And so you have two new records out. One is Dark Roads, one is Rough Gods. Dark Roads is a live record and Rough Gods is a new album. So right. then the 70 stop tour, would that have been based on one of those records or uh, all of your records put together? Uh -huh. Well, you know, when you, when you have a new record, uh, it's the most current thing for you. And yet, at least for us, there was never any inclination to leave behind the work that got us to the place where we were able to compose that, that third record called, called Rough God. So, you know, I think our set list probably would have been largely the Rough Gods record. Mm -hmm. and, um, and we might have had certain favorites from years past that we couldn't bear not to do. I mean, we did change the set list most nights uh, and not for the sake of variety, but because there was something in the air uh, on, the, on the trip from one city to the next or in the sound check or something about the landscape of the town that we had pulled into three or four hours before. And these things register upon you and even though you can't claim to have ever really seen the city, it has some consequence in the evening that you're imagining delivering in a few hours time. So we would have changed things up anyhow. And I guess the other thing I should mention is um, we didn't begin, well, easier description than that would be this. We came down, I was already down here in Southern Mexico, which I have to do for the sake of my breathing during the winter time. 
and Gregory joined me about oh, six or seven weeks after we came off the road uh, from the tour that's represented very well by the Dark Roads record. And we had intended to see if there was anything else in the tank, which you don't know mm -hmm. before you begin. At least we don't. We wonder what's there. And then we subject our wondering to some kind of discipline, artistic discipline, a musical discipline, literary, and so on. And um, we, we basically closeted ourselves away in this little house in the hills south of Oaxaca City uh, with no real engagement with the outside world. Uh, in other words, as the pandemic became the pandemic in capital letters, mm -hmm. we had absolutely no idea that it was going on. And I mean, no idea at all. So when we came out of our monastic isolation, we still, as far as we knew, had a 70 city tour that we were tuned and toned and ready for. The band was ready to go. And, um, you know, we're, we had all the travel arrangements made and the deposits and the, the whole thing. And, uh, and the poster for the show and the name of the tour the name of the tour and the, well, I, let me describe it to you since likely no one will ever see it. It was um, the map of the world that Sir Francis Drake uh, came up with as a result of his buccaneering days. It's a remarkable piece of artistic work with the, the monsters in the areas of the world that nobody knew about at the time. And in the midst of that world map that comes from the late 1500s, we had superimposed uh, a graphic that came from a mezcal cup that a friend of ours, a potter down here had made, which is a perfect circle. And in the middle of the circle is a skull. It's part of the cup looking at you. So as you sip it, the mezcal, imagining that you can live forever, the cup is advising you otherwise. So we took a shot of that and yeah. superimposed it uh, in the middle of the poster. And the name of the tour we came up with before the, we knew there was a uh, pandemic was uh, Dark Roads Tour, World Tour 2020. I think that was yeah. all the, those are the words. And we came out of it and turned on the news, so to speak, and were absolutely floored to find that the stuff that we had recorded seemed to have a sensibility that was informed by some kind of impending uh, calamity that we weren't consciously aware of. So as you listen to the record and as I do, picture that story, imagine it to be so, and then wonder where all this stuff came from. My answer would be, well, it came from the world before the pandemic and all that stuff is still here, though it may be in high relief now. When, when, when the record is written, does the music change the way that you write or is the music added afterwards? That's a good question. Man, nobody's ever asked me this level of detail about these things and I really appreciate talking about it. Um, what we did with the, uh, the live record, of course, is we had the tapes. So we, we doctored them slightly to make them the best possible acoustic event they could be for people who are listening. But basically, those were the shows that we did. So. That's what Dark Roads is. Mm -hmm. Rough Gods, on the other hand, came to us from a standing start last January and February. And, and the way we went about it was 
Gregory would be in a separate room and, uh, and I'd be probably outside on the, on the kind of deck and I would take things I'd been thinking about and try to render them in a kind of, let's call it literary or poetic way, mindful of the fact that X number of words on the page translates live or audio wise to be many, many more. And so you actually have to go through the, at least I do the process of editing down and finding the least number of left or right turns to still get you to where the piece got you when you first thought about it. And then, and then I would come out usually in the late afternoon and give Gregory an idea what I had. And we would set up in the evening uh, a microphone out on this porch. Uh, it's already dark. We're way out in the countryside on a hill. If you listen carefully to the beginning of the record, you can hear crickets. You can hear the village dogs barking at the bottom of the ravine. And um, and it I had a, what's called a click track, which is a basic yep. just metronomic uh, device to give me a sense of the rhythm. And I delivered everything that you heard on the record to absolutely no accompaniment at all, mm -hmm. because none existed. And subsequent to that, um, as we listened to the playbacks, and the virtually all of them were done in one or two takes, no more than that, my end of things. And then as we listened to it, there was uh, there were rhythms or syncopations that began to announce themselves that we would, mostly Gregory would, with some bothersome uh, influence by me, and uh, we would begin to craft a sensibility, you could say, that has a, a, a musical language that this piece of writing suggested to us. That's basically how all of them were born. And then he disappeared, uh, let's say two weeks later with everything. I didn't hear it again, any of it for the longest time. And then probably in June or July, he, he wanted me to listen to a few things and I was absolutely uh, floored because nothing that I imagined turned into the music that we have now. And this is where I had to be really educated about how precious my take on things should be or shouldn't be just because it's me doing it. Yeah. And that's where the real beautiful collaboration, deeply instructive for me, uh, really took place was over the summer and uh, we didn't know we were working on a new record I should say we didn't know suddenly we had two records in hand mm -hmm. but we did and this is what we did now it turns out instead of touring and when you then get to perform songs live just because of the like beauty depth and and sort of stream of consciousness feel to some of the songs does the music then playing with you when you perform it live, does that change the song? Yeah, I'm not even, first of all, I'm not sure you're very kind to imagine that I'm capable of delivering a song. I'm, I'm really no singer at all. So we've had to find a language to characterize these, these pieces that we do. And they're often referred to as stories mm -hmm. inside the band. And then those, we do some of Gregory's songs that I'd play along in, but certainly don't sing. Yeah. I play guitar and then um, 
when it's uh, when it's my stuff, uh, the band is uh, in a remarkably contained and controlled way. They're informing what I did uh, and informing me about what I did. And when we do it live, but you know the old all the old adages apply that the audience changes things. The people who are there, they certain things are brought out in you and who knows why you know on a given night um, we things extend a little or tighten up or become more fierce or uh, you know th this is the wonder and the joy of the live performance is that you have the material but the thing is yet to be done and the doing of it is turns out to be the whole thing yeah, and I, I was listening to the sample from uh, Dark Roads that was on your website, and uh, it, it was, one, it's really well recorded, a, a live recording. Uh, two, yeah. I, I just feel like I can hear the influence of the music and the audience on you yeah. um, and sort of it all going around in, the, in, in, that, in that beautiful circle. And there seems to be great moments of joy, little bits of audience reaction. Um, and then I, I think it's wonderful you released a live record because there's a lot of depth to it as well. So to go back and listen back to it. So by listening to your recordings, listening to your live recording and thinking about the words, it's interesting to think about the multiple layers and different interpretations that a person can take from that. Uh, is that something that you contemplate when you write this or is or is when these things are written, is there a singular thought behind uh, each line, each sentence? Um, I'm not sure that there's a lot of thought, to be honest. That sounds, to my ear at least, to be maybe not contriving, mm -hmm. but at least they're exercising like too much authority over what's there. I, I experience it as something closer to um, um, taking, I've often called it taking dictation from the great beyond. Mm -hmm. Taking dictation still requires that you translate into your mortal terrestrial language, right? I, I certainly have to do that. And as I'm doing it, I'm not picturing what it sounds like. I'm not picturing somebody sitting eight rows back listening to it. No, not at all. What I'm, what I'm trying to do is find out if the words and the phrases and the combinations that I came up with serve why they came to me, serve the time that they came to me in, and serve the anticipated presence of other humans who trade in their evening for the off chance that I could come up with something that's worth the trade. I do think about that all the time. Yeah, and uh, you and I spoke of Leonard Cohen last time we had a, we had a conversation, and I think uh, Leonard Cohen is an interesting person for that as well, because he used to always, he spoke of, if he knew where the great songs came from, he would go there more often. Yeah. Um, and, and that connection to the, to the universe and not having control over it. Um, is it is it strange to give over some of that control to Gregory when you hand him the, the words and he puts the music to him? Is there an excitement in that uh, endeavor? Yeah, well, terror has some excitement, doesn't it? And, <laughs> yeah. uh, and you know, I, when we first met, 
obviously I didn't know the man. I, I, I remember hearing his name in pop music circles back when I was in my late 20s. He had a, he had a quite a recording career uh, and touring career, but I just heard the name of the band. And then, you know, as oftentimes happens in, in, in the business, certainly in the Canadian arm of the business, um, if you don't strike it murderously rich in the first record, two at the most, you're basically done. Yeah. And um, and he, the, the miracle of Gregory Hoskins is he kept going with virtually no real marketplace encouragement to do so. So he's in his, I think, mid-50s now. And when I met him, uh, it was at his um, uh, initiative. He wanted to interview me uh, for, for a kind of project whereby he was going to try to find a way to reapproach his writing to basically as he said to blow it up and to learn from people whose writing that he admired i pointed out to him when he wrote to me i'm not a songwriter you know i know nothing about the business at all and he wrote back and he said he didn't think it mattered because he was aware of some of my writing and he thought it was really about the voice not about the craft of songwriting so anyway we met and um uh, sat and talked for about six hours and I didn't know if uh, I'd come through with the goods, you know, that justified him traveling all the way out to see me. And it was his initiative when he wrote back and thanked me for the time. And then underneath uh, the, the note that he sent me thanking me was a PS. And the PS said, if you're ever looking for a band, comma, I know this guy, dot, dot, dot. That's what he said. So can you imagine? Yeah. Well, I say this as a shy person. Can you imagine the kind of confidence it must have taken to write that and to send it to me, which he did. Now, the amazing thing, this is going to sound entirely made up or from a, from a bad docudrama, but I promise you it happened exactly like this. On the same week, an American charitable organization was in touch with me, and they said they wanted to give me money so that my work would be more widely circulated in the United States. How that would happen was basically up to me. How the money was spent was up to me. All I had to do was apply for it. Well, I knew something about these, um, these forms and I know I can't negotiate them. I just, I can't. They torture the language so desperately that I can't let myself do it. And that may sound precious, but there it is. And so I wrote back and I said, you wanna give me the money? Yes, they said, I said, well, give it to me then. And I'll, here's what I'll do. I'll go on a speaking tour of the United States. They said, perfect, but we can't just give you the money. You have to qualify for it. And I said, but this is your idea. You're already persuaded of the merit of the thing. Now you want me to jump through the hoop? By the way, they said, are you a nonprofit organization? <laughs> I said, are you kidding? I am for profit wherever possible, yeah. not but wherever possible. So then I'm almost disqualified from the whole thing. And then I remember that the uh, publisher of my first book, well, the first book that made it uh, called Die Wise yeah. is uh, federally registered in the States as a nonprofit organization. I told him this guy says to me, get your publisher to, uh, to fill out the form done. And they agreed to do it. And lo and behold, I get this money at around the same time that Gregory Hoskins says to me, if you're ever looking for a band, so I just wrote him and said, look, 
we have the possibility of these dates, it's in a month's time, across the United States. Here's where the funding's coming from. What do you think? And he wrote back and he one word in his response said, in. Yeah. Yeah. And then we tried to figure out what we could possibly do together after we'd agreed to do the tour. And that's where Nights of Grief and Mystery, the first record, basically was born in the kind of hothouse atmosphere of what are we going to do? What can we possibly do that neither one of us has ever seen or heard before? And it came very quickly and very faithfully. And we basically learned, well, I speak for myself. I learned to, I learned what kind of a talent he was. And then I learned what kind of a human he was, what kind of a man. Yeah. And those things all conspired to bring out, I would say, the best in me. So after some initial trepidation about how could I ever do what I do anyway, but driven by some kind of rhythm that I'm not in charge of and, and can't contain and all of those things. And we, we basically talked through it, I would say, over, you know, in the plane rides and so on. And we realized that what we were both about was something we came to call the pulse of the thing not the rhythm so much as the kind of um, asymmetrical pulse of delivering um, an, an understanding or a story or a, a confoundment. And then he had songs himself that worked mirac excuse me, miraculously well alongside what I was doing. And that's how it was born. So it was a, it was a great leap into the unknown that had we been younger, I would imagine our um, our attitudes and our our dilemmas with self-esteem and so on mm -hmm. probably would have made it very difficult to collaborate. But we were we were so past it in so many ways from the marketplace's point of view that nobody could care less about how we felt, and uh, and then we grew less and less attached to our you know, our understanding of what we'd been doing before we had met. And that was a great release. And it's gotten better each time out, each tour has been remarkably compelling. And uh, it's, I remain convinced that it's, it's really the best thing that I've ever had the pleasure and the privilege of doing. And it's, an incredible listen and you can feel a lot of everything that you've spoken about in the records uh, uh, that i've heard it, it's it's really cool uh, i know where time is coming to a close i do want to leave you with one last question if somebody does uh without any knowledge of you beforehand come to one of your shows how do you hope they leave your show <laughs> yeah of course presuming that we get to do it again there's yes. that yes I think, I think initially we on the stage we'd be so delirious with relief and a sense of having been saved to be able to do it again that that might be the prevailing thing. But from from the point of view of the people walking out before we do, um, I you know not to duck your question, but I really think that's none of my business. I'm enormously content to leave. No, I'll say it differently. To entrust what I'm capable of doing and what the band can do in the hands of the people who came and not tell them what it was 
or what it means or how they should be or what to take from it or how to live or any of those other disrespectful prejudices that tend to go along with the, the arrangement. In other words, we, we kept up our end. So far, we've done that every night. And it's not my prerogative to follow people home and find out what they say on the drive home. And so, you know, I have to live without that kind of feedback. I do get it from time to time in mail and so on. Uh, but um, I'm more than content to entrust the evening to the people who uh, who made that trade with us. To me, that's a that's a way of respecting them, and I'm happy to do it. And we will leave it at that. Thank you very much, Stephen. It was an absolutely incredible conversation, as always, and never, never long enough. But thank you very much for your time, and uh, good luck going forward with everything. And hopefully. You'll be playing a show soon, and hopefully I will be at one of them. Well, amen to all of that, and, uh, and right back to you in terms of my appreciation for, for your questions and your willingness to, uh, to keep doing the show of yours. Take care of yourself now. Thank you.